This week we have had an interesting week in our house. Some of you who were here last week will remember I talked about this um, notion of having one day off in seven as a Sabbath rest, and I showed you a video clip from my friend Josh Taylor and how his family has been practicing a Sabbath. So we decided um, as a family that we were going to try this. So Friday night we were going to have a special meal together, light candles, and then rest for 24 hours, and that included no technology. So this, this was a good plan. Um, during the week, we had a funeral here, which was a good occasion, but funerals take a lot of time to prepare. So I was a bit panicked, how can I land and get everything done? So I prayed, God, if you want me to have this rest, you've got to help me find pockets of time so I can get everything done. And by half past 12 on Friday, the sermon was complete and we did the funeral and we rushed home and we did have takeaways, but we lit the candles anyway and we had this special meal on Friday and it was good on Friday. It was really, really lovely. And then our daughter was so excited about having a Sabbath on Saturday that just like Christmas, she woke up at 5 a.m., <laughs> and came into the bed. Can we start the Sabbath now? <laughs> the whole point of Sabbath is just to rest. No, no. Anyway, she decided to set herself up a bed at the bottom of our bed near the heater and every 20 minutes or so asked if it was time to start the Sabbath. We had pancakes, that was lovely. We went to the hot pools, that was amazing. But by 2.30, we were scratchy. And we still had another four hours of no technology. By the end of the day, we were unsure if the Sabbath rest carried out in that way was for us. But watch the space. I think we're going to try it one more time, but with clear rules and a clock set about when you're allowed to come and ask to start the Sabbath and maybe a movie watching to finish the day. Anyway, that was our week. Friday was lovely. Saturday morning was awesome-ish. And we're here now. Um, <laughs> at the nine o'clock service, Paul was doing music, I was in here. Our daughter was hiding away in there watching the screen, because that's what we do when we give up parenting. She's watching some screen that the Wi-Fi dropped out. She came in to tell Paul he needed to come and sort, sort this out, and he said, no, no, he couldn't. I think she's very tired. She storms out, slams the door as she goes, middle sort of the sermon, a little bit embarrassing. Anyway, soon she'll be too old for me to tell these stories. Right now, what she doesn't know doesn't hurt her. There we go. But here we go. I'm hoping for a good 10.30 service. This morning, I want to talk to you um, about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and we're going to read from the book of Mark. And Jesus has been traveling around Israel, and he started healing people and teaching people, and he's going to head back to his hometown, and we're going to see how that goes for him. So here is from Mark chapter 6. Jesus left that part of the country, the Decapolis, and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? But then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Judas, 
Joseph and Simon, and his sisters are right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. And then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in their own hometown and among their relatives and their own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then Jesus went from village to village, teaching the people. And he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. And he told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples were sent out, telling everyone they meant to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. So here in this passage, we see this pattern of what Jesus is doing and then his call to his followers, come and mimic me, come and do the same things that you will do. But with this warning, I've been rejected and you too may suffer the same rejection. So here is the theme of today. So where Jesus is and where he starts off, right at the beginning, we see that he is in this place, this area here called the Decapolis or 10 Towns. And he's around here and he's teaching and he's doing amazing miracles and then he crosses the lake and he goes to his hometown, Nazareth. So that's where we are in the world. And when he's in Nazareth, he goes to his hometown, very little synagogue. And this is an image of what they think is the actual synagogue. It's now underground because of the years that have been built up over time. But here it is. And he gets up in his hometown synagogue. Now the most famous passage in the Bible based here is the same story, but it's retold in the book of Luke, where Jesus gets up in Luke 4 and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And from there, Luke says that the people run him out of the synagogue and they're so angry at him, they want to throw him off a cliff. Now, the way Mark tells it is a little bit different. Here, they don't reject him just because of his teaching, but they're like, who are you? You're just a carpenter's son. We know who you are. This is your hometown. But the reaction is the same. They want to reject Jesus. They can't accept his teaching. Now, this could be a very contemporary story. You don't have to look too far to find people who want to reject Jesus, reject him either because they don't believe who he is or because they find his teaching offensive. And this is a common pattern in our culture. I did sociology at university at postgrad level, and most of my fellow students were of the type that were like, Jesus didn't even exist. He was just made up by a group of people. Everything written in the Bible is just a bunch of hokey, it's not true. So that is quite common in some circles where you'll find people who are quite happy to reject Jesus, either because they don't like his teaching, they don't believe who he is, or just want to write him off. You don't have to go very far to find this sort of thinking, particularly online. I did a quick Google of typical things people say about uh, rejecting Jesus, and I found this article 
from the Washington Post. I quite like the Washington Post, interesting newspaper. Here was an article that says, did the historical Jesus really exist? The evidence just doesn't stack up. And the author says these two things. The first problem we encounter when trying to discover more about the historical Jesus is the lack of early sources. The earliest sources, compiled decades after the alleged events, all stem from Christian authors eager to promote Christianity, which gives us reason to question them. There are no existing eyewitness or contemporary accounts of Jesus. All we have are later descriptions of Jesus' life by life events by non-eyewitnesses, most of whom are obviously biased. So this is pretty typical of what you'll find written. One thing to note about this, and this is a, a, a little aside, is there's quite a lot of circular logic going on here. We can't believe anything that's been written about Jesus by people who've written about Jesus, is generally the argument. So people who followed Jesus around were convinced about Jesus and wrote about him cannot be trusted because they wrote about him and were convinced about Jesus. So then who can you look to? And when you read the article, he says that the Jewish historians and the Roman historians who wrote about Jesus can't also be trusted because they were influenced by people who believed in Jesus. So if you use that logic, you can begin to write Jesus off. You can't believe anything that was written because it was written by people who had you know, believed in Jesus. There's actually some inaccuracies here. The earliest accounts of Jesus were written by eyewitnesses, by people who'd seen him, and they were written very close to the fact. It's very common for bio biographies to wait a couple of decades. If you think if you've ever come across a biography of like Martin Luther King, it wasn't written the year he died. It's written a couple of decades later. What is interesting about this argument is here's this theme throughout history. People encounter Jesus and then they are quick to reject him. Jesus gets under their skin. Jesus bothers them. And so they write him off. But what is fascinating is when you compare the way Jesus, people react to Jesus versus other great thinkers in history. Socrates, famous for saying that um, it is because I alone of all the Greeks know that I know nothing about the comment that he was the wisest man that had lived among the Greeks. So Socrates also went on to say this, true wisdom comes when each of us, to each of us when we realize how little we understand about life, ourselves, and the world around us. So Socrates was killed for being a disturber of the peace. He was made to drink poison. Famous philosopher about 400 years before Jesus. The only reason we know anything about Socrates is because Socrates' follower, Plato, wrote down what Socrates said. Socrates didn't write anything himself. What we know about Socrates was written by his follower. So here is an interesting comparison. If you're okay to believe that Socrates existed as a person, the same logic could apply to Jesus. Socrates' followers, those who believed his teachings, um, wrote down about him, and he is now in the history books. But for some reason, Jesus gets under people's skin. He got under his own family skin, he gets under people's skin today. And what is it? 
Well, Jesus describes himself in this instance as a prophet. A prophet is rejected. And we often think of the word prophet kind of like someone who can tell the future, someone who can do prophecy. I predict that in the future, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes these sorts of people capture the attention of the media. This person is prophesying this future event. In Jesus' day and through the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, a prophet was often someone who told the truth. We've got this phrase now that people use, they speak truth to power. Jesus was someone who spoke truth to power. He was a truth teller. And he called his followers, come and join me and learn to speak truth. And there is danger in this. When you speak truth, it annoys people because people are comfortable in their own beliefs. It can threaten structures that people are used to. There's been some instances lately around the world where you see people have a prophetic voice. They're not all Christians, but they are speaking truth to injustice in their situation. Well, the most famous um, lately has been, I'm going to get her name right, Malala Yousafzai from Pakistan. Now, as a child, she decided to speak up for the right for girls to go and have education. She lives in Pakistan, and the Taliban were in control, and the Taliban forbidden girls, for, forbade girls from getting an education. And she spoke up a bit against that. She um, had a secret documentary filmed about her, where she went under a pseudonym by the BBC, which was um, shown around the world. Now, eventually, obviously, the Taliban figured out who she was, and someone came and shot her three times. One of the bullets went through her head and lodged in her shoulder, and they assumed she would die, but she was airlifted out to the UK, was able to get out of Pakistan, and her life was saved. Now, she's won, won a Nobel Prize for her um, activism around the rights of girls, but you could say here is somebody who spoke truth like a prophet, speaks truth to power, and suffered quite gravely because of it. A few decades ago, we had Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks, most famous for refusing to get out of her seat on the bus, and therefore starting the civil rights protests and movement in the United States. Rosa Parks didn't come to fame just because of this. She had already been an activist for many years, and she was um, really involved in the whole scene in America, fighting for the rights of African Americans. Here is someone who speaks truth to power about the injustice of treating children of God as if they are less than equal. Recently, a New Zealander died. His name was John Osmers. And uh, he was from Christchurch. He was a um, vicar's son who went on to become an Anglican priest himself and eventually went to Lithsoto in southern Africa. And from there, he joined the anti-apartheid movement. And one day, he received a letter, and he opened it, and in it was a bomb and it blew off his hand, it took all the skin off the front of his legs and made him blind. This is the cost of speaking truth. 
This is the cost that Jesus calls us to. And this is why Jesus gets rejected. Just like these people suffered for speaking the truth, so does Jesus. I think one of the biggest challenges we face alongside having the courage to speak truth is when do we speak the truth? And what is the truth in certain circumstances? Our world is often very complex. Lately I've been reading a lot of the horrors of the Lake Alice case, and some of you may be following this in the news. Lake Alice was a psychiatric hospital for teenagers, but they often just sent naughty kids there. I don't know if you've read any of this, it was just horrific amounts of sexual abuse going on, and they also used to um, punish kids with electric shock treatment. That was, you know, a pretty controversial, controversial mental health treatment, but they just gave them to kids, you know, if you were naughty, you'd just get an electric shock without a sedative, without any painkiller. So it's pretty horrible what has gone on there, and there's a doctor that now lives in Australia who oversaw this. I think one of the things when you see this, it's so obvious how horrible it is what has happened there. I think it's layer upon layer, though, of evil because there was a doctor who did this, but also when people started reporting what had happened, the government um, undertook a concerted effort to hide it. And they have, through the decades since this happened, changed legislation, issued edicts to ensure these people never got justice. They didn't get fair payouts for the treatment. When I see something like this, to me it's obvious. There is a call to speak truth. This is unspeakably evil, what has happened. But sometimes it is not always as obvious in our culture, and sometimes people get wrapped up and caught into things that at the time seem important, and they are causes to jump on board with. But in retrospect, you can look back and say, was that really as big a deal as we thought? The other day I was chatting to a couple of people and we were talking about um, a few years ago how there were a few Christians who got themselves really upset about the anti-smacking legislation. And they were sending around petitions and boycotting this and that. And in retrospect, um, you know, was that a wise thing to really get so upset about? I, I don't think, you know, looking back, there was really anything to, to complain about there. And I think that, you know, there was a debate at the time and many people said this could be good legislation. But there's always, you know, someone will say this is terrible and you can get caught up and caught into it. This is what we should be complaining about. This is where the church should take a stand. And really it takes incredible wisdom to step back and say, is this the big issue? Do I fully understand it? Do I comprehend all the nuances of this? Sometimes people ask me, what is the church's opinion on this? What does the church believe about this? What does, you know, what do you believe about this? And the first thing I say when people say, what does the church believe? I say, well, we're all different people, so there is no one statement you could ever say that the church believes this, because we're not a cult. So we have a wide range of views. But often my answer would be, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. We need to be very, very careful 
Sometimes we can get so swept into this idea we have to speak truth that we stop and we, or we fail to stop and ask ourselves, what is the truth in this situation? How do we know what is true? How do we know what is right and what is good in this situation? I read this great quote this week by Benjamin Franklin that says, humility, imitate Jesus and Socrates. This is, I think, a piece of wisdom for us when we want to discern what is right, what is true. We are called to be humble. We may not know the truth. The truth may be far more complex than we imagine. Imitate Jesus, Socrates, both of them were killed for speaking the truth. Let's not be in a hurry all the time. But how do we then know what the truth is? Are we just to left flailing about forever, having no sense? Or where do we find what is true? How do we know what is good? When Jesus was about to be killed, he went before the ruler of the day, Pilate, and Pilate is questioning him. And Jesus says this, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. And Pilate's answer could be very much like our world. What is truth? But here is the answer. Jesus came to speak truth. And we are called to engage with Jesus, to hear Jesus' voice, to allow Jesus' presence to shape us, to mold us, and to help us begin to see the world as he does. And there's two ways we can do that. The first way is we can read the stories and the words of Jesus. In the books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have the stories about what Jesus did and said. And if you haven't read them for a while, go home. Find that Bible hidden somewhere on your bookshelf covered in dust. Brush it off. Have a read of the words of Jesus. But the second way is this. Jesus rose from the dead, and then he promised that he can be present in our own lives and guide us and shape us. And so we can ask Jesus, what is the truth in this situation? Sometimes I've found when I might ask that, that I already have my preconceived ideas, this is what is true. But when you still yourself and allow yourself to be quiet, I have found very much the sense of you might not know. Be calm, be slow to make judgments. What you thought you knew may not be right, and just take your time. So here is an invitation from Jesus to learn to follow him, to learn to hear his voice, to learn to understand and to love truth, no matter where that might lead. Lucas, who's in our band wearing the red plaid shirt today, he, he wrote a song that we often sing. And I think these words are very apt for today. This prayer, give me eyes to see the beauty in your world and ears to hear it cry. We are called to learn to see the world as God sees it. And that can challenge our own thinking. It can challenge our preconceptions. 
It can challenge us out of our own comfort zone and we are called to have courage. And I think it takes courage to stand up for the truth. It also takes courage to say, I don't know the truth. I will be quiet and listen. I'll be humble and learn to seek Jesus' voice in this. Let's pray together. Jesus, you were rejected by your own family and friends, and that must have hurt. I pray that you would give us the courage that you had when we need to speak the truth, even in small things, at work when we study, around friends and family. Help us to be courageous to speak the truth gently. But Jesus, I pray even more than that, help us to be humble and learn to discern the truth. Learn to understand what is true and what is just our own preconceptions, our own wishful thinking, our own assumptions. May we be humble people. May we speak gently, but with conviction, when you call us. So empower us, I pray. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see the world as you do. Amen.